Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, thank you very much indeed, Peter and Laura, and uh, don't miss tonight and learn so much more about France and Spain, two of the neediest mission fields in the world. Indeed, the continent of Europe is now one of the neediest mission fields in the world. Thank you to Raymond for the advice about hearing aids and uh, you know where the adjustments need to be made. You reminded me recently of a story I heard a friend told me of an old man who really was developing quite a serious hearing problem and he spoke to his doctor about it and his doctor said, John, just delete that worry or anxiety you have. There is the most wonderful hearing aid available for someone just like you. And within a few weeks, John had his hearing aid, and uh, the doctor said, now I want you to come back to me in three months. Tell me how it's going. And I guarantee you'll hear everything. So in three months, John came back, and the doctor said, well, John, how's it going? Oh, doctor, it's fantastic. It is fantastic. I can hear every word my family say. Oh, the doctor said, that's great, John. I'm delighted, I'm delighted, and I'm sure your family must be thrilled. Oh, doctor, they don't know anything about it. haven't told them yet. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard every word they've said for three months, and I've changed my will three times. (laughs) So it's amazing what you can do when you hear, and uh, so make sure it's adjusted properly so that we don't miss out. Well, um, this morning... We're not here to think about hearing aids. As you know, if you've been here uh, earlier this week, we're thinking about Christ's body beautiful, the church and some of the marks that he wants to see in the life of the church and in your life and mind. And this morning, it was funny, I was talking to a couple of people before and one said, now, what will you be speaking about this morning? And uh, she got it right. She said, mind and absolutely right. This morning we're going to be looking at hearts and minds, although in reverse order, minds and hearts. I wonder, have you ever heard the following? I heard it at a mission agency conference, and this is a little rhyme. To my deafness I'm accustomed, to my dentures I'm resigned. I can cope with my bifocals, But, oh dear me, I miss my mind. Anybody identify with that? How many lists have you made already today? Men, how many times have you gone to the fridge and you were told it's there? It's not there! And isn't it so irritating when they come and lift it? There it is. And you think, what is wrong with my mind? And as you read through the book of Ephesians and other parts of the Bible, you discover there's actually quite an emphasis on the mind, is there not? How did Jesus sum up the commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, hearts, soul, mind, and strength. And when you meet a Christian and when you see a church that has a beautiful balance of mind and heart, It's a thinking church. It's a compassionate church. 
a thinking Christian, a compassionate Christian, a Christian in a church with a clear mind and a compassionate heart. My, what a combination that is in the kingdom of God. And one of the things we're going to be looking at, or some of the things we're going to be looking at, are these. The Bible talks about a darkened minds, encourages us to have disciplined minds, and certainly again and again speaks of discerning minds. Just turn with me again to Ephesians chapter 4, and as you do, just please remember to, have, to turn your mobiles on again at the end of the Bible reading this morning, which reminds me I need to turn mine off. That's good. Um, Ephesians chapter 4. Beginning at verse 17, in the NIV version of the Bible, which I have, this passage is entitled, Instructions for Christian Living. Instructions for Christian Living. And you see, Christian thinking determines Christian living. Thoughts determine behavior. Decisions determine behavior. We make decisions with our minds. We weigh things up or we don't weigh things up. And we make a decision in our mind. And then we face the outcome or the consequences. I remember a new bishop, and this is true, going to a diocese in England. And he said to his archdeacon, who was one of his right-hand people, "Um, do you think when I come to this diocese I could do the following? And the archdeacon wisely said to him, Bishop, when you come here, you can do whatever you like. You can make whatever decision you like. But remember this, you will have to live with the consequences of the decision you make. So think it through carefully, wisely. So let's hear what Paul says to the Ephesians. Ephesians 4, verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Do you think this is important counsel from the Apostle Paul? Of course it is. Look at how he introduces it. It's not just, I want to tell you this. I insist on this from the Lord. When someone uses the language of insistence, folks, that raises the bar, doesn't it? That shows how important this is, how urgent this is, how necessary this is. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility, the foolishness, the shallowness of their thinking. And then this staggering statement, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts, minds and hearts. Verse 20, sorry, verse 19, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. When you read a description of a group of people like that, does it ring any bells with our Western culture in the 21st century, in the year 2013? 
people who have lost all sensitivity, given themselves over to sensuality, indulging in every kind of impurity and full of greed. Wow, there's a lot to unpack. My goodness, if that isn't a reality check, what is? We see marks of all of those things every day. Look at the tabloids today and you will find evidence of every single one of those characteristics. Verse 20, but brothers and sisters, that is not the way of life you learned. Do you remember yesterday we were thinking about putting off certain things, putting on certain things? Paul again is contrasting the old with the new. This isn't what you've learned, brothers and sisters, in Christ's body beautiful. You're to put off your foolishness and futility in your thinking. You put all off all this stuff. Focus on the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ. My goodness, what a different way he lived. What different values he had. What different priorities he cherished. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. With which part of our bodies do we grasp truth? With which part of our bodies do we learn things? Well, I know many years ago, some educationalists seemed to think that we learn things through this part of our anatomy. But actually, it's the mind, isn't it? It's our minds that we use to grasp truth, to wrestle with truth, to understand truth. Verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires to, make, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Minds that were darkened can be enlightened. Minds that have been thinking in a futile, foolish way can start thinking in a purposeful, useful way. The contrast of the old and the new, made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, let's be honest here. There are some of us who love to put on new clothes, don't they? And there are others of us here, and we hate to put on new clothes. Well, when we come to know Christ, there are new clothes to wear that all of us want to put on because we're dissatisfied with the dirty old rags that we've been wearing. They've been marked by futility, sensuality, impurity. But now we've discovered a new way, and they're robes and clothes of righteousness and purity and holiness. And you know something for those for whom these things matter? Those clothes have the designer's label on them, the creator's label on them, and they're the clothes we're called to wear. Marks of the body beautiful, characteristics of the new life. What is it goes into our minds? You see, what goes into our minds 
and our hearts comes out of our mouths, in attitudes, in words that we speak. I love this exhortation of Paul in verse 23, which we've just read. Be made new in the attitude of your minds. For those of us who have lived through the years of what we call the Troubles in Northern Ireland, have we ever despaired of some of the things that seem to go through people's minds? They're reflected in some of the stories that we tell. I heard of a man going into a pub in Belfast and he had a crocodile on a lead. And he went up to the barman and he said, Dad, do you serve prods in here? And the barman said, of course we serve prods in here. We serve anybody. That's great. I'll have a pint of Guinness and a prod for the crocodile. <laughs> now, what kind of attitude of the mind is that, folks? But it's illustrative, isn't it, of the kind of hatred and bitterness that we can harbor in our minds that are reflected in the words that we speak, in the attitudes we adopt. And Paul says, hey guys, get rid of all that. That's the old self. That's the old stuff. Be made new in the attitudes of your minds. What goes into our minds is what will come out of our mouths and what will be lived out in our lives. Is it any wonder then that Paul in Romans talks about the sinful mind being hostile to God? You needn't look it up but Romans 8, but do look up with me Romans 12. Because Paul talks quite a bit about the mind in Romans. In fact, you need a good clear mind to understand parts of Romans. But look at these wonderful words that are familiar to so many of us. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you. Same kind of meaning as I insist. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, to be a part of his beautiful body, to live the life worthy of our calling, as we saw earlier in the week. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Worship is surrender, sacrifice, a living sacrifice, the laying down of our lives for the one who laid down his life for us. And isn't it fascinating what Paul says next then? Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And you remember Philippians chapter 4, when Paul talks about the mind again. The last chapter of Philippians, just look it up with me. Again, another very familiar passage. Philippians chapter 4. I told you we'd be going to different parts of the Bible this week, so we're on our tour to hear what God is speaking into our lives. Philippians 4, verse 8 following. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. 
Fill our minds with those things. Dwell on these things. Whatever you have learned, notice again, use of the mind, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Do you remember what we saw yesterday in John 13? If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Put them into practice. And God wants us to put into practice the ongoing renewal of our minds, the right and proper use of our minds, the dwelling on those things that are lovely, beautiful, pure. Do you remember an advertising campaign and the strap line was, you are what you eat? Do you remember that? If you eat too many McDonald's hamburgers, you'll start to look like one. If you don't believe me, go to the United States of America. But I wonder would an even better caption be, you are what you think. Because it's what we think, what we dwell on in our minds, what we believe with our minds, that is going to determine our attitudes towards one another, our behavior, our values, our priorities. Be made new in the attitude of your minds. Listen, I want be absolutely honest with God for a moment. Honestly before God. Forget about everybody else who is here this morning. This is just the Lord and you, the Lord and me for a moment. What do we feed our minds with? What kind of stuff do we read? What kind of DVDs do we watch? What kind of TV programs take up our time? Good, pure, wholesome, holy, Or are we exposing our minds to moral sewage? Because let me tell you, too many Christians are. We are what we watch. We are what we think. And Paul's plea and God's plea is that we feed our minds with what's good and pure and beautiful. I honestly believe there is a battle going on for the minds of people in our world today. I really do. Right across this world, and I guess in many of our sessions this week during the convention, we've picked up the battle that is going on in many parts of the world to win the minds and hearts of men and women, boys and girls. And in the midst of this great clash of kingdoms that's taking place and this battle to grasp, to take control of people's minds and hearts, in the midst of all this, Jesus calls you and calls me and calls his body beautiful to be salt and light. We're here to be preservatives. We're here to make a difference. We're here to be lights shining in the darkness. Right thinking leads 
to right living. Brothers and sisters, let's use our minds to the glory of God. Recently, I came across the following from one of the great heroes of the faith, William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army. Now, I want you to remember the context of this. These words were spoken over a hundred years ago in England, over a hundred years ago, at the end of the 19th century. And as William Booth looked forward into the 20th century, this is what he thought and what he said. The chief danger that confronts the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. Wow. William Booth is not often known as a prophet, but let me tell you, he got it absolutely right. Bang on. Every single one of those things have happened in my lifetime and in the lifetime of many of us here. Every single one of those things. And they come about through the wrong use of our minds. And our minds don't grasp and don't submit to the truth of God revealed in Scripture, which is quite different to what we read up here. I believe John Stott, and I take it you've gathered this week, he's one of my heroes, in the right way. He was absolutely right when he said this in his book, Issues Facing Christians Today, and I quote, Our Christian habit is to bewail the world's deteriorating standards with an air of rather self-righteous dismay. We criticize the world's violence, dishonesty, immorality, disregard for human life, and materialistic greed. The world is going down the drain, we say with a shrug. But whose fault is it? Asks Stott. Who is to blame? Let me put it like this. If the house is dark when nightfall comes, there is no sense in blaming the house, for that is what happens when the sun goes down. The question to ask is, where is the light? If the meat goes bad and becomes inedible, there is no sense in blaming the meat, for that is what happens when the bacteria are left alone to breed. The question to ask is, where is the salt? Just so, if society deteriorates and standards decline, till it becomes like a dark night or stinking fish. There is no sense in blaming society, for that is what happens when fallen men and fallen women are left to themselves. Just what we read earlier, sensuality, impurity, greed. That is what happens 
When sinful fallen men and women are left to themselves and human selfishness is unchecked, the question to ask is, where is the church? Where is Christ's body beautiful? Why are the salt and light of Jesus Christ not permeating and changing society? It is sheer hypocrisy on our part to raise our eyebrows, shrug our shoulders, or wring our hands. The Lord Jesus told us, you and me, his body beautiful, to be the world's salt and light. That is part of our calling. If therefore darkness and rottenness abound, it is our fault, and we must accept the blame. Isn't it thrilling in the world of mission to see communities being changed through the salt and light of the influence of Christian people? Isn't it wonderful to see kids getting an education in some parts of our world because some Christians have had the vision of being salt and light in that community? Isn't it wonderful to see villages changed Parts of cities change because of churches that are living like Christ's body, beautiful, and they're impacting the community they're a part of. I remember years ago at either Keswick or Port Stewart Convention hearing a preacher talk about a, a church in the southern part of the United States called Gang, God's Anointed New Generation was the name of the church. They wanted to impact their community. They talked to different people in the community about what are some of the main problems in this community. They discovered that one of the biggest social problems was people who committed a crime and were charged. There was a phenomenally high percentage of people committing a crime for the first time, going to prison, and then committing crimes for the second, third, fourth time. A huge percentage of first offenders became second, third, fourth time offenders. And this church decided they would talk to the, legal, the uh, police and the judges and so on. And they said, listen, we have families in our church who are willing to give a home to some of these first offenders. And rather than spending time in prison, could they do community service and live with a family in our church? And that's what happened. And you know, the crime rate went down. I was talking to a church leader recently in Belfast, working in one of the toughest parts of Belfast. The police have been thanking the people in that church for the work they're doing. Do you know why? The crime rate has dropped in that part of Belfast. Why? Because so many young people are being reached for Christ. Hallelujah. Salt and light. Right thinking, right behaving, and cultures are changed. Lives are changed. Communities transformed. Be made new in the attitude of your minds. This is Paul's plea and Paul's cry to us. We're to move on from darkened minds to having disciplined minds. Billy Graham was asked, Dr. Graham, if you had three years to live, what would you do with those three years? He said, I'd study for two years and I'd preach for one. Good answer, unexpected answer. I'd study for two years. I'd use my mind and my heart in grappling and grasping with God's truth, relating the gospel to the world, and I'd preach for a year. The use of the mind 
a disciplined mind. In 1933, President Franklin Roosevelt, President of the United States, visited the home of his friend Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. When the President arrived, the 92-year-old Oliver Wendell Holmes was sitting in his library reading Plato. 92, reading Plato. And he had a clear mind, by the way. Okay. After the two men had settled comfortably, President Roosevelt asked Holmes the following question. May I ask, sir, why you're reading Plato? Yes, certainly, Mr. President. I'm reading Plato to improve my mind. 92. There's some of us here at 62 and we think our minds are finished. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. There's so much more to be discovered, to grapple with, to wrestle with. You know, minds are a bit like muscle. Ignore it and it becomes flabby. Push it, exercise it, do your sudoku or whatever it is, whatever keeps the mind active. Thinking clearly, let's do it. Asking good questions, exercising the mind. And our minds can become even more useful, even though we identified with that little rhyme that I said at the beginning, I miss my mind. There's still things we can do. An undisciplined mind opens our lives to all kinds of temptations. Wasted opportunities. But if we use our minds to ask good questions, to dig deeper, to explore the scriptures, to wrestle with issues, to have conversations with others that will stimulate and inspire, that's a right use of our minds. All the great leaders throughout history, be they Christian or not, have been people who have used and stretched their minds, even to later in life. And I think that's part of the challenge of thinking through God's body beautiful for all of us. Discerning minds. Paul wants us to be discerning, to be wise, to use our common sense. Look at chapter 5 in Ephesians. Look at verse 15 in Ephesians 5. Again, he's referring to our minds. Ephesians 5, 15, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't live as unwise, live as wise. You know, God's most frequent form of guidance is common sense. The psalmist said, don't be like the horse and mule without understanding. Use the mind that God has given us. Just watch this little video as a little illustration of maybe an unwise use of the mind. Somebody! 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 Hello! 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 
There are two people stuck on an escalator and we leave tap. Now, with somebody, please do something. Hey, don't worry about it. I'll take hey, it in a second. Tell me, if you'd been that businessman and the lady behind him, what would you have done? Walked up. I mean, it's just so wise. It's so obvious, isn't it? But sometimes we don't use our common sense. Paul says to the Ephesians, live as wise people, not as unwise. You know, some of us are praying about stuff we actually don't need to pray about. I remember sitting listening to a lady who said to me the following, this is gospel truth. She was having an affair with a man, not her husband. She said, I've prayed about this and the Lord has told me he hasn't said no. Like folks, what kind of planet was she living on? How can you read the Bible and say the Bible teaches that God says it's okay to have an affair? You don't even need to pray about it. It's clear, crystal clear, black and white. All we have to do is use our minds and think of common sense. Do what he says. Couldn't be clearer. And some of us can sometimes over-spiritualize things when actually God just wants us to use the minds he's given us and be wise. Have a discerning mind. Move away from the darkened mind. I love Paul's prayer in Philippians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Just turn over the page. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Paul says, This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Knowledge, discernment, both are about the use of our minds. It's a brilliant illustration of the difference between knowledge and discernment in a commentary I read some time ago. Here's a question for you. Let's use our minds. Is, t is tomato a fruit or a vegetable? Is tomato a fruit or a vegetable? It's a fruit. You're quite right. It's a hard one, that, isn't it? 
But look up the dictionary, look up the science books. Tomato is a fruit, okay? That's knowledge. We know that. Now, what's discernment? You don't put it in a fruit salad. Okay, that's discernment. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, listen, I'm praying for you guys in Philippi, verses 9 and 10 in Philippians 1. I'm praying that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, knowing God, knowing the truth, and so on, so that you may be able to discern what is best. And in both knowing and discerning, we're using our minds. So, folks, there it is. I know some of us may feel our minds aren't what they used to be, but we all have a mind that God has given us. And we're not like the man that a bishop met one day after a service, and he was shaking hands with people at the door, and the man said, Bishop, every word you said in that sermon went in one ear and out the other. And the bishop, I think rather ungraciously, but I can understand why he said it, said, well, that's not surprising, John, because there's nothing in between to stop it. <laughs> but actually, there is something in between. There's the mind that God has given us, the, the brains that God has given us. And let's hear what Paul is saying. Be careful then, very careful then, Ephesians 5.15, how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. Don't be foolish. Use your common sense. Understand what the mind of the Lord is. On the 26th of June, 1971, in Glanmire Parish Church in County Cork, two very young people stood at the front of that church as bride and groom, and we sang with the congregation, May the mind of Christ my Saviour live in me from day to day. And I can honestly say Helen and I meant it. And what a privilege to use our minds for King Jesus. What a privilege through the guidance of his word and his spirit to seek to live a life that is wise, not unwise. And did you notice that in verse 18 we had a reference to hearts as well? So just for the last few minutes, let's just focus a little bit on the heart as well as the mind. Because the call of Christ is that we're to love our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Proverbs 4 verse 23 says this. This for me, I don't know if in your Christian life you've had some words of scripture or some verses or some passage that really has been foundational for you and pivotal for you in your life. This is one of a few verses that has been for me. This verse has meant so much to me over the years. And notice what it's all about. It's about the heart. Proverbs 4, verse 23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of your life. In Ephesians 5, Paul talks about singing and making melody to the Lord with all of our heart, or making music from our heart to the Lord. He talks about hearts that are hardened. The Bible talks about hearts that are surrendered completely, utterly, unreservedly to the Lord Jesus. 
above all else. Folks, this is top, top priority. Above all else, guard your heart. At the very beginning of these Bible readings on Monday morning, we thought about the incredible emphasis in our Western culture on how we look, our appearance, the external. Our God is more concerned about the internal. Where does man look on the outward appearance? Where does God look at the heart? He sees what others don't see. What did Jesus say about the people who will see God? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do you know some of the words that Jesus, that most concern me, not least as I go around different churches, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And I'm not being judgmental when I say that because there have been times in my life when I've honored God with my lips, but my heart has been far from him and I needed to repent and come back. And maybe some of us do here this morning because we know we're living with the externals being right, but the internals all wrong and our heart is not what it should be. We were thinking too, do you remember this week, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, asked David. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. A pure heart. Tell me, how are things in the very root of your life at the moment, the very depth of your life? Are you guarding your heart? In Hebrew thinking, the heart is like the control tower of our bodies. How's the control tower going? Are our hearts full of love and saturated with love for the Lord Jesus so that we're living for him? He is the first in our lives. And folks, I don't care what age we are. We can be teenagers. We can be in our 90s. God's call on our lives is to love him with all of our heart till we see him face to face and then we love him even more. A couple of years ago, I had the privilege of preaching at Keswick Convention, and I will never, ever forget one evening after one of the sessions, and we were praying with people, and this old lady, in her she must have been in her mid-80s, I'd say, in a, in a motorized wheelchair, was directed to me and asked me to pray for her. her I have to tell you, um, she clearly was in pain. Her body was all, it was all over the place. She had one of those supports for her neck, you know, at the top of the chair. And I thought, I'm sure this lady's going to ask me to pray for her healing, for grace to persevere. I have to tell you, and I'm not ashamed to say it, I was nearly in tears when I said to her, and what would you like me to pray for, for you? And she said, I'll tell you what I want you to pray. She said, I've been witnessing to an elderly lady in my sheltered accommodation and I want you to pray that she gives her heart to Jesus. Boy, there's an old lady with love in her heart, wanting to share her faith with the people in her sheltered accommodation. I felt like a spiritual pygmy 
or leprechaun. As I prayed with that lady. Caleb at 84, Lord, give me this hill country. All his heart, unreservedly, he was following hard after God. I wonder, is that the way some of, us, some of us used to be? But we know we're not like that any longer. Where's the big heart gone? You know, the prodigal son, that story you and I call the prodigal son, it's not actually primarily about the son. That's not why Jesus told it. It actually should be a story that's called a grace-filled dad or father. It's actually a story all about the father and the father's love and the father's grace. And when that repentant son came home, that father embraced and said, son, it's great to have you home. Great to have you home. And what that father in the product story of, that Jesus told had was he had a grace-shaped heart, a big heart. A pure heart, a heart overflowing with love and mercy. And folks, this is God's call if we want to be his body beautiful. We're called to have grace-shaped hearts, grace-shaped lives, to be grace-shaped churches. Are we? Is that the reputation we have in our communities? A community of grace, a people with a big heart, generous, thoughtful, kind, Serving others. Marks of his body beautiful. Think of these things as I finish with a very short video and then a prayer. child shall lead them. Look at the kind of heart that little girl had. Look at the compassion, the love, the grace in her heart for her brother having his cancer treatment. Looking out for him coming home. What can I do to encourage him? What can I do to help him? What can I do to show him I love him? And to the total shock and horror of her mum and dad, she cuts her hair off and gives it to him. What a picture of our God. What a picture of Jesus. Our God is a God of a big heart. And his body beautiful is to be about a big heart. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray.
Father God, thank you that your heart is so grace-shaped, so full of compassion and love that you sent Jesus, full of grace and truth. Lord Jesus, in the power of your Holy Spirit, may we be a people who use our minds to your glory and fill our hearts with what fills yours. In your precious name we pray. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.